Greetings, students. As always, is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, All the Way with LBJ. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, The Man. Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson, a.k.a. LBJ, was sworn in as president on Air Force One. He had been born in the West Texas Hill Country, and he went to Southwest Texas State's Teachers College, which is not an Ivy League university, which most presidents go to. LBJ was a skilled legislator. He was a longtime Texas congressman and senator and became the Senate Majority Leader in 1955, and he has been described as a master of the Senate, being able to shepherd through legislation whenever he wanted to. He was a passionate, egotistical, and vulgar, idealistic control freak. And there's a clip I want you to play of him on the telephone. So as you heard, he's relatively vulgar. If you look at the picture, you will also notice an example of what is called the Johnson treatment. Johnson used his impressive physical stature in order to intimidate others. And he was also well known for having people meet him while he was either naked in the gym, so that they could see who the big man in the room was, or he would have men come and talk to him while he sat on the toilet. Now, he did this because he had retained most of JFK's team and continued to follow his presidential agenda, but he had been treated as an outsider by most of JFK's advisors, so this was him getting a little bit of comeuppance. In the end, LBJ wanted to be remembered as a great man, but he also genuinely wanted to help the people. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Domestic Agenda. In January 1964, LBJ delivered his State of the Union address, which said, quote, This administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America, end quote. Then that May, LBJ delivered another speech in which he called for a great society that, quote, rests on abundance and liberty for all, end quote. Go ahead and listen to the clip on the PowerPoint. As you can see, LBJ wanted to end poverty and racial injustice, and he also wanted to guarantee a more secure existence for all Americans during good and bad times alike. So this would be like the New Deal but LBJ desired to push it further. In July of 1964, Congress passed and LBJ signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which banned segregation in public accommodations, including in private businesses like restaurants, theaters, and hospitals. It also banned discrimination based on race or sex in employment, which included hiring, pay, and promotions. LBJ then helped pass the 24th Amendment, which put a constitutional ban on the poll tax and also helped secure voting rights. Lastly, LBJ passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which protected black voting rights and set up federal observation of Southern elections. Taken together, LBJ knew that this would doom the Democratic Party in the South, but he signed it anyway. Then in October, Khrushchev was overthrown in the Soviet Union in a coup led by Lednoid Brezhnev, and shortly thereafter, 
China detonated its first atomic bomb. So not only is LBJ going to have to focus on domestic affairs, but his administration is also going to have to contend on key foreign policy decisions related to the Cold War. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Birth of Modern Conservatism. In November 1964, the U.S. presidential election was held between the Democrat Lyndon Baines Johnson and the Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, who was a Republican. Goldwater became the first Republican presidential candidate to oppose the core tenets of the New Deal. Goldwater had rose to prominence after he published his book, The Conscience of a Conservative, where he attacked Social Security, the Income Tax, the Limited Test Ban Treaty, and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He attacked the latter because he said that it was not the federal government's job to tell businesses who their customers should be, and he also took the Great Society to task. Goldwater favored smaller federal governance and a return to Christian values as well as an advocation of states' rights. So as you can see, he's pretty much rejecting the last 30 years of American political advancement. Goldwater proclaimed, quote, Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. End quote. Goldwater was not the only one advocating new positions for the Republican Party. At the grassroots level, John Birch societies rose up throughout the country, and these were local reading clubs of ultra-conservatives who believed that there was a vast communist conspiracy to destroy the country. They believed communists were in the military, that they were in charge of the Supreme Court, and that most Democrats were, in fact, communist sympathizers. John Birch Society saw conspiracies everywhere, and they equated civil rights, the anti-war movement, and the loss of traditional values as a communist plot. While these conspiracy theorists were on the more fringe side of society, many mainstream personalities began to articulate a more conservative vision for the future. One such personality was William F. Buckley, who created the show Firing Line and the publication National Review. Buckley believed in a responsible and civil discourse between people who disagreed with one another. So while Buckley vehemently disagreed with many of his guests, he treated them with respect and allowed them to speak before he gave his opinion. And this is really the way that we should conduct our public discourse. Buckley's civil discourse brought conservatism to a wider popular audience than the Birch Societies and greatly furthered the movement. In terms of politicians, Ronald Reagan was a rising star within the Republican Party. He was the governor of California and a proponent of conservatism that would soon be associated with his Reagan revolution in 1980. It's interesting to note, though, that his later presidential campaign often distanced itself from his measures as governor of California, in which he advocated tax increases as well as gun control. Conservatism not only spread because of popular figures and politicians, but also due to demographic changes. As you recall, many Americans, including conservatives, moved to the Sun Belt in order to get work and to live in the suburbs. This led to many conservative bastions throughout the region and explains the tendency to have Republican candidates for president come from that area. 
For example, the last five GOP candidates from the Sun Belt, Goldwater of Arizona, Nixon of California, Reagan of California, Bush and his son W. Bush from Texas, Toll from Kansas, and McCain from Arizona, illustrate the point. Only Mitt Romney from Massachusetts and Donald Trump from New York broke this mold. And that was all within the last eight years. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Election of 1964. The election of 1964 pitted this new conservative movement against traditional liberalism. As I had said before, Goldwater was the last GOP candidate since the 1940s to argue against New Deal tenants. And so Republicans ran on the slogan, In your heart, you know he's right. To which Democrats responded, In your guts, you know he's nuts. Democrats painted Goldwater as a trigger-happy, aggressive man who would doom the world to nuclear holocaust. And you should see a clip on the PowerPoint from the famous Daisy ad. During the campaign, LBJ said, quote, We are not going to send American boys 9 or 10,000 miles away from home to do what Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves, end quote. So here, he's obviously referring to the Vietnam War, which we will talk about next time. The results of the election were clear. LBJ won the largest landslide in the history of contested U.S. elections, gaining 61% of the popular vote and 486 electoral votes. But there's bad news for the Democrats. For the first time since Reconstruction, the Republican Party had won deep southern states, and this was all a reaction to LBJ's support of civil rights in the Great Society. So as you'll see, this is the beginning of the West-South Coalition of Republican Voters that will continue to this day. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Liberalism's Zenith. In the 1964 election, Democrats gained huge majorities in the House and Senate. And so now that the party controls Congress, and since LBJ has great legislative skills, many great society programs will be created and passed. And this is very similar to FDR's first 100 days in 1933. One of the great society programs was Medicare for the Elderly and Medicaid for the Poor, which expand aid to those groups beyond what Social Security could manage. Medicare is a national health insurance program for individuals 65 years and older, and this was critical since only half of those individuals had health insurance prior to this act. In our modern era, 59.9 million Americans get their health care thanks to this program. Medicaid is a federal and state program that covers some medical costs to low-income individuals who would not be able to pay for health care themselves. Another great society program was massive funding for education, including Project Head Start, which provided early childhood education, health, nutrition, and parent involvement services to low-income children and their families. You also see the passage of the Food Stamp Act, which provides government funding for low-income families so they could get the nutrition they needed to survive. One last example is the National Endowment for the Arts, which provides grants to artists as art is critical for societal culture. 
The point is that this is a massive federal spending campaign, which created a more secure safety net for society's most vulnerable citizens. And while this is very expensive, it keeps millions of Americans healthy to this day. Please advance to the next slide entitled, 60s Society. The counterculture has often been described as sex, drugs, and rock and roll. In this era, drug usage increased as younger Americans began experimenting with recreational drugs. In the 1950s, the CIA and military had experimented with LSD, testing it on soldiers in Project MKUltra. By the 1960s, several figures promoted the use of LSD in order to provide individuals with new experiences. For example, the Harvard professor Timothy Leary used LSD in numerous clinical studies. While all of these studies looked at how the drug affected the human mind, he took away philosophical ideas about its usage, and he came to believe that individuals could use LSD for, quote, serious purposes, such as spiritual growth, pursuit of knowledge, or their own personal development, end quote. Naturally, many opposed this view, and Nixon once described him as the most dangerous man in America. Others embraced his philosophy in the extreme. For instance, Ken Kesey, who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1960, and who also had participated in a government study where he was exposed to LSD, embraced the drug with his Merry Pranksters. The Pranksters traveled the country in a psychedelic-painted school bus, dressed in tie-dyed clothing, and organized parties where they gave out LSD. The Merry Pranksters' escapades were famously chronicled in Tom Wolfe's 1968 novel, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Many individuals later associated the image of these pranksters with other youth rebellion who were collectively lumped together as hippies. Most of these actions were done in jest, in order to trigger the quote, norms, and make a larger critique of establishment society and conformist culture. While LSD was later criminalized in 1968, marijuana usage also increased in this era, in numerous government studies under both Democratic and Republican presidents showed that it did not lead to violence or heavier drug usage. In fact, during Nixon's administration, they proposed decriminalizing the drug, though this was ultimately rejected by the president. Many older Americans were worried about drug usage in the country, and anti-drug propaganda films, like Reefer Madness, showcased the misconception that marijuana led to temporary insanity and worse. Though, of course, the use of harder drugs, like amphetamines, cocaine, and other highly addictive narcotics, led to increased deaths and homelessness, and there was, and is, a legitimate health crisis in this country regarding drug usage. As a result, from the 1970s onward, there would be an ever-increasing war on drugs whose effects is hotly debated to this day. In the 1960s, we also see the emergence of the sexual revolution. We see the growing promiscuousness and changing gender norms, where people are having more sex with more partners in and out of marriage. 
divorce rates had been climbing since the 1950s. And many couples either divorced or found new partners or experimented with swinging as a way to deal with marital stress. Younger Americans, too, became more promiscuous, and the use of the pill allowed many women to have sex without becoming pregnant. Some feminists saw this as empowering, allowing women to claim a pleasurable privilege that had only been allowed for men. While the sexual revolution allowed for new experiences, though, many women became disenchanted with it, as they realized men were just using them for sex. And more consequential was the spread of STDs throughout the United States. Americans also embraced new lifestyle changes. Numerous communes, collectives, and intentional communities were created and became popular in this era. There was also a new push by many urbanites who wanted to live a more agrarian lifestyle in the countryside. And this was called the Back to the Land Movement, as many city dwellers came to rural states like Arkansas, where they built farms and communities next to older southern ones. Inside the cities, some hippies formed communities to practice new forms of social relationships. For instance, the neighborhood of Haight-Ashbury became a focal point for the counterculture in San Francisco. Psychedelic shops were opened, local diggers or community anarchists created a free store that gave away meals daily, and they also built a free medical clinic and generally opposed capitalist society by giving free aid to those around them. In 1967, the Summer of Love was pronounced at Haight-Ashbury, and Americans from across the country came to try out this lifestyle. At its height, the community became a haven for psychedelic rock performers like the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin. In fact, many artists in this community later appeared at the Monterey Pop Festival from June 16th to 18th, 1967, which was widely seen as the precursor of Woodstock. As Haight-Ashbury grew more popular, it brought in people who were less inclined to the philosophical aspects of the movement and instead were interested in freeloading. As a result, crime, homelessness, drug usage, and overcrowding became problematic and many left the community to return to their college studies or lives. Haight-Ashbury held a mock funeral at the end of 1967, declaring that the movement was dead there, but it encouraged others to bring the revolution to their own areas. So as you can see, as with most experiments in alternative lifestyles, there's a fine line of trying to enlarge in the movement without attracting the less-than-desired aspects of society. Rock and roll, too, was changing. New technologies allowed for its dissemination, and big business had not yet corrupted American music into the wasteland of fads and marketing that we see today. Woodstock, arguably, is the greatest rock festival in American history, and was held at a dairy farm in Bethel, New York, just southwest of Woodstock. Despite coming after the Monterey Festival, Woodstock became the symbol of the counterculture, where 400,000 people congregated for three days to listen to rock and roll, while some experimented with drugs and sex. Some of the greatest American musicians participated in Woodstock, such as Joan Baez, Santana, 
The Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, The Who, Jefferson Airplane, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and the immortal Jimi Hendrix. So as you can see, the youth of America was pushing beyond the conformity culture of the age and embracing a new view of life. While some aspects of the counterculture stressed new physical and social relationships, others commented on politics. For example, the New Left was highly critical of the Democratic Party and liberals in general. And there's actually a clip on the PowerPoint I want you to listen to. It's a song by the artist Phil Oakes called Love Me, I'm a Liberal. Okay, so did you listen to it? I find it hilarious. And it illustrates that it's not just conservatives who bash liberals. There's always been a thunder on the left. As the song showcased, the new left was vehemently anti-capitalist and anti-war. And they also argue that the civil rights reforms did not go far enough in creating racial and social equality. While the new left challenged the political system, we see that there were those who challenged the entire system. And this is an example of the Weather Underground, a left-wing domestic terrorist group, and they tried to bomb high-profile targets but were never effective. In fact, they were better at blowing themselves up than doing any real damage, though they still became a boogeyman for the right. The point is that the counterculture changed American society as new groups of people began to experiment with alternative lifestyles, technologies, music, and drugs. The result would lead to a political backlash that would help enlargen a conservative majority. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Year of Tumult. 1968 was one of the most traumatic years for Americans. Many whites were fed up with the civil rights movement and resented the minuscule changes to American race relations. In addition, the Tet Offensive began, which was a massive communist offensive in Vietnam, which we will talk about next week. But this was again jarring for Americans who were told that they were winning the war. Since this offensive put that assertion in suspicious view, many Americans began to ask, what else is the administration hiding? As a result, the anti-war movement intensifies, which greatly polarizes Americans. Despite the fact that many Vietnam veterans opposed the war, most Americans believed that the anti-war movement was made up of spoiled college students. In fact, it was not. It was a multiracial and multi-class protest against a useless and costly conflict. Then, in a surprise event, on March 12, 1968, with a presidential election looming, a primary election was held in New Hampshire. And the little-known Minnesota Senator and Dove, Eugene McCarthy, challenged LBJ for the Democratic nomination. He was specifically running against the Vietnam War, and he captured 41% of the vote, while LBJ only got 50%. And this was devastating for a sitting president. Four days later, the New York Senator, Robert F. Kennedy, who had been a hawk but turned over to a dove, entered the Democratic race. This changed the Democratic primary, and for the first time in decades, a sitting president was challenged by more than one individual in his own party. Seeing the writing on the wall, LBJ shocked the nation on March 31st. 
While he gave a speech in which he described the continued operations in Vietnam, he informed the country that since campaigning would interfere with his duties as commander-in-chief to bring about a quicker close to the war, he said, quote, I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president, end quote. Please advance to the next slide. On April 4th, Martin Luther King Jr. was in Memphis supporting a sanitation workers' strike and was assassinated by a white gunman. In response, riots erupted across the country and over 40 people died, though RFK, in a speech, did try to calm things down, and there's a link on the PowerPoint for you to watch. Then in May, with the war in Vietnam going badly, peace talks resumed in Paris, though they were very slow in making progress. In June, RFK defeated McCarthy in the California Democratic primary, but he was then assassinated by a Palestinian who did not like the senator's pro-Israeli views, thus cutting short another Kennedy life. In August, the Warsaw Pact tanks rolled into Prague, Czechoslovakia, in order to crush a liberalization movement called the Prague Spring. Like the Americans, the Soviet Premier Brezhnev also worried about falling dominoes in his own sphere of influence, and the Americans were unable to do anything about this aggression. Please turn to the next slide entitled, The Whole World is Watching. From August 26th to the 29th, the Democratic National Convention was held in Chicago, and the Democrats were divided between hawks and doves. Inside the convention hall, the Democratic establishment rejected a mildly anti-war plank and nominated LBJ's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, as their presidential candidate. This was seen as outlandish to many, as Humphrey had not won a single presidential primary. But since the establishment controlled the convention, they ignored previous primaries to nominate Humphrey. Incensed by this and confronted by police, anti-war protesters screamed pigs and chucked bags of excrement at law enforcement. In response, a fight erupted between the 10,000 protesters and security forces consisting of 6,000 troops and hundreds of Chicago police who tear-gassed and clubbed the protesters. Please go ahead and watch the clip on the PowerPoint. So as you can see, U.S. soldiers and police are beating protesters as the world watches on. And to many middle-class Americans, this looked like anarchy, and they began to associate this anarchy with the Democratic Party. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Crumbling Coalition. What we are seeing is the disintegration of the New Deal coalition. Blue-collar dischantment with liberalism will rise, because these white workers got the benefits of the New Deal, but they do not want to expand them to others. We also see a white backlash, as many are resentful of civil rights. We also see northern whites join this white backlash, because these civil rights movements cause consternation among northerners in their de facto segregation. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. once said that protesting in the North was far harder. As I alluded to earlier, 
many people also began to associate liberalism with social disorder, as well as changes to gender and sexual norms. Middle-class Americans also began to worry about the Great Society's price tag, believing that liberalism came at their expense. Because these Great Society and New Deal programs were very expensive, so many politicians crafted arguments against large taxes that gave benefits to quote-unquote undeserving people. We also see many blue-collar Democrats become more culturally conservative because they don't like civil rights or women's rights or changing gender norms. They want traditional quote-unquote family values. The point is that these issues will be used to pry open the New Deal coalition and will signal an era of new political realignment. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Push for Peace. In October 1968, LBJ made one last overture for peace, in part to help Hubert Humphrey, who was trailing in the polls behind presidential candidate Richard Nixon. LBJ agreed to halt the bombing of North Vietnam in exchange for the North's agreement to limit infiltration of the South and let the Southern government participate in peace talks. While the North accepted, the South did not. Why do you think that is? Well, in part, President Tu was worried that his government would get sold down the river in negotiations. But, in an extremely unethical act, Republican aides to Nixon's campaign privately assured Tu that they would defend his interests better than the Democrats would. Let's be clear, this is treason. Nixon called off a potential peace that would result in another 20,000 U.S. deaths and over 1 million more Vietnamese deaths for basically the same peace plan in 1973 that LBJ could have signed in 1968. Please click on the clip on the PowerPoint to listen for yourself. So as you can see, LBJ is outraged. But on October 31st, he publicly announced that the bombing would stop anyway. LBJ could not reveal Nixon's treason because it would expose the methods used to discover it. Especially since the CIA was wiretapping the president of an allied nation and the FBI was wiretapping the Saigon embassy. Because the methods used to discover this treason were embarrassing and confidential, Nixon's secret was safe. He had committed treason by getting a regime that was supported by the blood of 35,000 Americans to go back on a peace talk to help Nixon get elected. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Nixon's Strategy. The Nixon campaign had several methods of creating a new emerging Republican majority. And the policies he pushed were that of limited government, states' rights, and social and cultural traditionalism. Nixon's campaign also pioneered the Southern strategy, which aimed at turning conservative and moderate Democrats into Republicans by opposing civil rights and promoting cultural conservatism. Though Goldwater had used this strategy, he was viewed as too racist. The key was to use dog whistle racism, using keywords and phrases like welfare queens 
to denote a part of the population who did not deserve the benefits of government help. This also combined traditional Republican calls for fiscal responsibility that aligned with middle-class Americans' desire to end funding for social welfare programs. Nixon also used a strategy called the Kid Lash. In this appeal to many middle-class Americans who were upset by a rise in crime and youthful rebellion, and they view the Democratic Party as responsible for turning their kids into hippies, protesters, or even worse, communists. Nixon also used the politics of law and order. Since the Democrats were perceived as being culpable for protests and riots, this appealed to many Americans who were perturbed by such violence. Lastly, Nixon promised peace with honor in Vietnam. In other words, he would end the war and preserve U.S. credibility, meaning not cut and run, and this message appealed to many Americans. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Third Party Challenge. In the election of 1968, George Wallace and the American Independent Party staged one of the most successful third-party challenges in 20th century history. Like Nixon, Wallace leveraged the white backlash and kid lash, and Wallace said that he would lock up the protesters, shoot the rioters, and give the hippies a shower. Wallace portrayed his candidacy as a fight against the Great Society, but he did not attack the New Deal. Wallace would argue against Medicare, Medicaid, and Head Start, but supported Social Security, GI benefits, and other programs for whites only. So he does not want to give the benefits of federal programs to minority groups. Wallace and Nixon also tried to drive a wedge between labor leaders and union members. Labor leaders may have been Democratic Party allies, but lots of rank and file union members supported the Wallace campaign. I want you to think for a moment. Are there any potential contemporary parallels? The point is that while Nixon and Wallace did not reject the New Deal, they ran on critiques of democratic social programs and played on middle-class American fears about debt, social disorder, and changing cultural norms. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Election of 1968. The presidential election, held in November, pitted the Democrat Humphrey versus the Republican Nixon and the independent George Wallace. Humphrey couldn't distance himself from LBJ and suffered from it. And as a result, Nixon won a fairly close election, thanks to his treason and Wallace's peeling of deep southern states away from the Democratic Party. Though the Democrats retained control of both houses of Congress, the Democrats would only win one presidential election for the next 20 years. By looking at the map, we see the deep southern states again rejecting the Democratic Party over civil rights and protests. This will lead to a massive realignment of American political parties, as white southern segregationists, cultural conservative blue-collar workers, and a rising moral majority of evangelical Christians will enter the Republican Party. The point is that we finally see where our modern political parties come from. While 1896, 1932, and 1948 were important steps 
to sorting out American constituents, it is 1968 where we finally see the realignment that lives on to this day. Well, more or less, anyway. Please advance to the next slide entitled LBJ's Legacy. In January 1969, LBJ left office as a broken man and died four years later. His legacy is complex. He did more for civil rights than any president since Abraham Lincoln, and his Great Society programs helped a lot of people, but many others resented the massive government spending and sprawling bureaucracy. Many people increasingly associated the era's riots and protests with government handouts. And moving forward, there would be a conservative backlash. LBJ later said, quote, I knew from the start that I was bound to be crucified either way I moved. If I left the woman I really loved, the great society, in order to get involved with that bitch of a war on the other side of the world, then I would lose everything at home. All my programs, all my hopes to feed the hungry and the homeless, all my dreams, end quote. Unfortunately, LBJ will forever be linked with a quagmire in Vietnam. But like all U.S. leaders during the Cold War, he desperately wanted to contain communism and preserve U.S. credibility. Ike and JFK had committed the U.S. to Vietnam, but LBJ significantly escalated U.S. involvement there. This is because his advisors had evidently convinced him that limited American involvement meaning lots of bombing and limited numbers of U.S. troops on the ground, would lead to a cheap victory. However, if history was any indicator, this wasn't going to work in Vietnam, where the locals had been fighting imperialists for thousands of years. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.